This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 22, and can be found on page 973 in the Bibles. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin, let's just pray briefly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together in worship. We thank you that you give us time to consider your word. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and that you would give us hearts and minds captivated by a vision of Jesus, our King. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, There's one more thing I would like to ask you to do if you don't mind helping the preacher out for a moment. And that is to join me in a little thought experiment. So if you were to ask a Christian, who is Jesus Christ to you, what do you think he or she would say? If you were to ask who is Jesus Christ to you, they would say Jesus is, join the dots. So if you could think about that for a moment, what do you think they would say? Now perhaps part of what comes to mind for you is Jesus is my saviour. He's the suffering servant who died for me. And that's true. That's very much the emphasis in Mark's gospel. Perhaps what came to mind for you is Jesus is my Lord. He's the Son of God who came to earth to rescue me. And that's true. That's very much what John emphasizes in his gospel. Perhaps your answer was something like, Jesus is my representative. He's my substitute. He's the greater Adam who lived the perfect life for me. And that's also true. That's what Luke emphasizes in his gospel. So if your answer was something like Savior or Lord or substitute, then raise your hand. No, most of you. Good. You can put your hands down. Uh, If your answer was Jesus is my king, raise your hand. Three. And that's why you have Matthew's gospel. You see, if you were a first-century Jewish Christian, then that may well have been your answer. You may well have said, Jesus is my Lord and he's my King. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm not a Jew first. I'm not a father first. I'm not a mother first. I'm not a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter first. I am his. He is my King, and I follow him, and I will never bow the knee to any other. That may well have been your answer, and that's what Matthew emphasizes. Christ is the king of creation. So in the first four chapters of his gospel, 
He shows us that math, he shows us that Christ is the descendant of Abraham and David. And he shows us that the circumstances of his birth are a complete fulfillment of an age-old prophecy that we find in the, in the Old Testament. And he shows us that he was anointed by God the Holy Spirit as the king who has come, who is inaugurating his kingdom. So chapters 1 to 4 are about that. They're about the inauguration of God's kingdom. The king has come. Then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he shows, it what, shows us what it means to be a citizen of that kingdom. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount isn't be about being a good person or becoming a Christian. It's about what the citizenship is like for people who are members of that kingdom. It's about what it means for your character, for your life, for your relationships. And then, at first glance, chapters 8 and 9 feel a bit bitty. They feel like a random collection of Jesus' works. So he heals people, and then he performs miracles. And then he heals more people, and then he raises someone from the dead. And then he heals more people, and then he sends the 12 apostles out to declare that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is Matthew trying to tell us with this seemingly random collection of Jesus' works, of his activities? Now, if you look carefully, what you'll see is that it's not random at all. So while chapters 1 to 4 are about inauguration of the kingdom, and chapters 5 to 7 are about citizenship of the kingdom or in the kingdom, chapters 8 and 9 are about authority. They're about authority. And Matthew shows us how Christ has authority over spiritual forces. He casts out demons. He shows us how he has authority over nature. He stills the sea. Over sickness, he heals. Over death, he raises back to life. He's in control. He can overrule. He's the miracle-working, all-powerful, absolutely sovereign king. Chapters 8 and 9 are about Christ's authority. So last week, Rob showed us how the stories of the healing of the leper and of the centurion's servant are actually about the fact that entry into the kingdom is through faith in Christ. It's not through who you are or what you do. That was verses 1 to 13, faith in Christ. Today, verses 14 to 22 are about following Christ. They're about following this sovereign king. And there's two parts to it. The first part is, about, is that it's about the Christ who heals, which is verses 14 to 17, and the second part is, that, is about the Christ who demands our total allegiance, verses 15 to 22. And we'll look at each of those in turn. So firstly, the sovereign king heals our sin sickness, as it were. So what Matthew does is he takes you as the reader to a scene in Peter the Apostle's house. Now Peter's obviously married because his mother-in-law is there, and she's very ill some kind of fever. And here's what happens in verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. And then word gets out that Jesus the healer is around and is in the area. Verse 16, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. But the question is, what does it mean? Does it mean that Christ on the cross has taken on our illnesses and diseases and that Christians should not get sick? Is that what he's saying? That's certainly what many churches in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement would have you believe. So here's a quotation written by a pastor in what is the largest church in the United States. They have 35,000 members. Maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Instead, say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have a good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. If you'll rise up in your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. Start boldly declaring, God is restoring health to me. I am getting better every day in every way. You just need to rise up in your authority to put a stop to the negative things in your family line and to boldly declare, God is restoring health to me, and then Alzheimer's will pass you by. You just need to have confidence, authority, and faith, and then Alzheimer's will pass you by. That's how you will conquer your suffering. And if it doesn't pass you by, then logically, you are the problem. That's the message. But that's not the Bible's message. That's not what Matthew or Isaiah are teaching. Isaiah 53, which Matthew quotes from, is one of the great suffering servant parts of the Bible, one of the great suffering servant parts of the, of the prophecy that, that Isaiah gives. Passages that highlight the fact that there will be a suffering servant who will come and will take the punishment that we deserve. So please keep your finger in Matthew 8 and turn to page 740. Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Page 740. Reading from verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, did you notice how in verse 5, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant being pierced for our transgressions, transgressions being the wrong things we had done, the law of God which we have transgressed or broken, how he talks about being crushed for our iniquities, for our sins, 
And he talks about being punished to give us peace, wounded so that we might be healed, with our iniquity being laid on him. He's obviously emphasizing the fact that the suffering servant who was going to come would pay for our sin, the wrong things we have done. He would be our substitute for the punishment and the wrath of justice that would fall on him. But look at verse 4. He took up our infirmities, so the things that cause us suffering, and carried our sorrows. Now, given the context of Jesus paying for our sin, which he's clearly talking about elsewhere, does he mean sin in that verse, or is he pointing to illness and disease in that verse? And that's a fair question. Now, turn back to Matthew, and look at how he translates that in verse 17. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Matthew translates sorrows from Isaiah 53 verse 4 into diseases in Matthew 8.17. Is Matthew saying that Isaiah's prophecy is that the suffering servant would take our illnesses on himself and that no Christian should therefore get flu or cancer or Alzheimer's? Is that what he is saying? Is that how we should understand Isaiah? Early in the year 2000, James Montgomery Boyce, he's a, he was a well-known pastor in Philadelphia in the States, was diagnosed with cancer. And his congregation wanted to know, how should we pray for you? What should we say? And this is what he said. He said, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression, however, is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they are rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that is where God is most glorified. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by him. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. Boyce died two months later. And he died knowing that whenever the Bible talks about suffering in Philippians, in Colossians, in Romans, wherever it talks about suffering, it never talks about conquering your suffering. Exactly the opposite. It talks about rejoicing in suffering. And it tells us that God is in control. It tells us that God allows sickness to come, and he does so for a reason. He does so regardless of the fact that he can heal any sickness and prevent any illness, he does so in a way that is not outside of his control or outside of his plan. 
It is all under his control. James Boyce died knowing that his sovereign king could heal him, but he also died knowing that in his sovereign king's good, pleasing, and perfect will, he chose not to. Even more, he died dealing with his suffering in the way that Paul urges us to do in multiple places in the New Testament, rejoicing. Not rejoicing because suffering is good. It is not good in itself. But because he knew it wasn't mindless. It wasn't purposeless. He knew it was there for a good purpose, for a good reason. Rejoicing because he knew that God was using his suffering to orient voice to himself to produce endurance and character and hope, all of which Paul explicitly says in Romans chapter 5. That's what Boyce knew when he faced death. And I'm absolutely confident that if you asked Pat Dunn whether she facing death agreed with Boyce, she would have said, Amen. I'm not going to say any more about Pat because I'll blub in the pulpit. So if the truth about suffering and sickness is that God allows it for a good purpose, how on earth do we square that with what Matthew is saying? How does he want us to understand he took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases? Matthew did deliberately change the translation from Isaiah, and he did it for two reasons. He did it firstly to emphasize the fact that yes, all illness, all pain, all suffering and disease are resolved in Christ, but not in this life. Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When are our tears wiped away? When the old order has passed away, not before. They're all resolved at Christ's return, when we enter the new order of things, a new heaven and a new earth. He may give relief now, but he may not. But they will all be resolved at the end. So that's the first reason why Matthew does what he does. But the second reason, more importantly, what Matthew's doing is he's emphasizing the fact that Jesus' authority over sickness is proof that he has authority over sin. That's the point he's trying to make. That's what these stories are all about. That is their primary reason. That's the main reason why Christ performed the miracles. So what Matthew's doing is he's tying all those miraculous healing stories to Isaiah's prophecy to show you that just as Christ has the power and authority to heal sickness, so he has the power and authority to heal sin, to forgive. He's saying that Jesus, the suffering servant in Isaiah, performs the healing miracles which point to one thing above all, the fact that he can heal sin. And if you don't get it here, then he makes it very explicit in the next chapter. So look at chapter 9, verse 2. A couple of pages on. Chapter 9, verse 2. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. Is that what it says? No. He said... Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. 
So as Jesus expected, the religious big deals in the room immediately complain and accuse him of blasphemy because only God can forgive sin. And you know what? They are absolutely right. They are 100% correct. That's the whole point. Only God can forgive sin. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Put another way, Jesus basically says to them, you don't believe that I can forgive sin, that I have the authority to forgive sin? Well, talk is cheap, so I'll prove my ability to heal sin, which you can't see, by miraculously healing illness, which you can see, just as Isaiah prophesied, and he heals the man instantly. Christ is the sovereign king who heals our sin sickness now. The guilt that we feel, the shame that we feel, can only be cured by Christ. There is no other cure. And when he returns... He will also cure all spiritual, emotional, and physical sickness, all tears, all suffering, and all pain for the citizens of his kingdom, for his followers. Which brings us to the next section, verses 18 to 22. The sovereign king demands our allegiance. So there's this religious figure, this teacher of the law, who's used to having people hang on his every word. And he comes up to Christ and he says, verse 19, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Which seems nice, right? Commitment. It's a good thing. And Jesus answers them in a way which is really strange and enigmatic at first glance. Verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Which is a bit puzzling. You can almost feel the teacher of the law frowning in the background. And then we're told about a disciple in verse 21 who seems to have other urgent priorities on, my, on his mind. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, as you know, there are various social media platforms out there which allow you to create a profile page and start collecting followers, people who will hang on to your every word. Now, and perhaps some of you are amongst the 100 million or so followers that some football players and celebrities each have. But perhaps you're a more dedicated follower. Perhaps you are a card-carrying season ticket holder of a football club. Perhaps you're even closer to the inner circle. And perhaps you're a, you're a committee member or a fundraiser. You're dedicated, you're committed. You give time, you give money, you give effort, you, you, give, you sacrifice. You're dedicated to the cause. You pay that obscene bill every year. What Matthew describes here are two followers of Christ who are very, very different men. Very, very different men, but who have one thing in common. They have one thing in common. So the first man is a teacher of the law, a religious authority, a man who has many followers on his profile page. Now, at first glance, he seems to have the right motive, right? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But what Matthew is very subtly showing us is that Jesus sees below the surface and he knows that this man has mixed motives. 
What he's subtly showing us is that when he uses the phrase teacher in Matthew, he always uses it to indicate that the person questioning is negative toward Christ or doubts what he is saying, or in this case has mixed motives every time. And what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus looks at this teacher and he immediately knows, you want the benefits, but you're not prepared to give me the priority, come what may. That's what he knows. And he highlights what following him involves. And he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. His message is, are you prepared to give up everything? Are you prepared to sacrifice every comfort and every possibility of a home on this earth if that's what I ask of you? Are you prepared to make following me the highest priority in your life? And it seems not, because Matthew says nothing further about the man. And that's exactly what he has in common with the second man. So this guy is already a follower of Christ. He's a disciple. He's a card-carrying season ticket holder. And he says in verse 21, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now at first glance, that seems kind of harsh, right? As a reaction. It's as if Jesus is saying, ignore your father's funeral needs and just come with me. But if we understand the culture a bit better, then what you'll realize is that's probably not what's going on here. You see, by Jewish law, anyone who died had to be buried on the same day. It's highly unlikely that this man would have been with this crowd around Jesus if his father had died. He would have been at home making extensive funeral preparations. That's what he would have been doing. So what's probably going on here is that he's asking to stay at home during his father's remaining years and then to follow Christ. So he's probably saying something like, Lord, my father doesn't have that long to live. First let me go and care for him and bury him when he dies. And then when Jesus says, in effect, forget about waiting for your father to die, he's putting his finger on yet another priority which has jumped into this man's mind when he thought about the difficulty of being a disciple. He's putting his finger on yet another priority that comes first. The point he's making is that being in the kingdom, being Christ's disciple, cannot be done if you are elevating something else above him. The point he's making is it can't be done if there is something else that's a higher priority in your life. That's his point. And just as with that teacher of the law, he's saying to this man, and therefore to us, are you prepared to make following me the highest priority in your life? That's what he's doing. Now please notice, he is not saying making sacrifice is the price you pay to become a disciple, to become a Christian, not at all. You're saved by grace and grace alone. Following doesn't get you into the kingdom. Entry into the kingdom is a gift. But he is saying, nothing can come before me, not even whoever is closest to you. And he makes this whole point, this point of him above family, even more forcefully later on. So please turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 verse 37. 
<coughs> Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying that as his disciples, we must be prepared to put our fathers, our mothers, our wives, our children, a distant second. And he puts it in a way which is quite shocking, especially for the culture of the time. Because the culture of the time, the era that he's in, is one where family has a far higher premium than we could appreciate today. He's making radical demands of you if you're a disciple. He demands to be first above all others. He demands complete allegiance. He demands a radical, full-time commitment in every walk of your life. He makes the kind of claim over your life that only God can make. But if he is God, then it's actually not extreme at all, right? If he is God, it's not outrageous. If he is God, then you owe him the seat of sovereignty in your life. Now, to your Western ears, this may sound a bit burdensome. It may sound oppressive, even. But the amazing thing that a disciple of Christ discovers is that it's not burdensome at all, it's liberating. It's not oppressive at all, it's kind and it's loving and it's good. That's what you discover. You know, Christ is not some remote deity who couldn't give a hoot about you, who's only obsessed with his own self-aggrandizement. That's not who he is. He made you. He died for you. He made you his own, and he wants you even to experience his glory. He gave you good things on this earth to enjoy. He gave us things like life and family and home, wonderful things and good gifts. So it follows that if God wants you to give up one or more of those gifts in a specific situation, to sacrificially serve him somewhere else, someplace else, then it's because the sacrifice is worth it. And it's not only because it's worth it, it's because it is good. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll be comfortable. I'm not saying it'll be pain-free or without distress or without heartache. I'm saying it will be good. And so he makes a promise to you, and he promises you, whoever loves his life for my sake will find it. You will find a good life now, a life of purpose and a life of meaning, despite the sacrifices you may be called to make. But it's not only now. So turn forward a few more pages to Matthew 19. So following the breadcrumbs. Matthew 19, and the same theme comes up again from Christ. Verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, possessions, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. 
The king that calls you to follow him is the same king who calls you to make sacrifices, is the same king who makes you a promise. And his promise is, whatever security you've had to sacrifice as a disciple, whatever losses you've had to endure, whatever relationships you've had to relinquish, they're all just a drop in the ocean compared to the security and the gains and the relationships that await you in the new heaven and the new earth. And it's the sovereign king of the universe who makes that promise to you. John Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides over 100 years ago. And he writes an account of being pursued by hostile villages. And this is what he writes. He says, I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there all lived before me as if it were only yesterday. I heard the frequent sound of gunfire and the yells of my pursuers. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Christ. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not begrudge spending many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone in the midnight, in the very embrace of death itself, and beyond, through to the very end and beyond, have you a friend that will not fail you? Have you a sovereign king? who will not fail you. Christ is the sovereign king who heals our sin sickness. He's the sovereign king who demands our total allegiance. And he's the sovereign king who promises whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you mercifully and graciously provide that you give us the strength to do what you call us to do, things that at times seem impossible. We pray that you will give us the resolve, that you give us the desire, that whatever we need to truly be your followers, to, to hold you above all other things and all other people, that you would give us that resolve and you would give us that desire. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will return victorious and that at the last we will see all sorrow, all pain, all tears wiped away in a glorious new heaven and a new earth. And we pray this in your name.